0: I deal with a host of coaches, some will will pull in the, the old school coach camp and some in the more modern, younger space. And I think it's become a real, um, not a clash, I'd probably call it like a dysfunctional marriage of the art and the science of coaching.
1: You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the
2: global sports technology podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed, I'm your host Thomas Loams. great to have you joining us again this week. On today's show we have a discussion on building a high performance culture with science and technology. As you might notice from the recording, you don't hear my dulcet tones in this, you do hear some similar accents, that's because this week's episode is drawn from last year's Australia Sports Tech Conference as part of the Sports Tech World Series. Our guests are Daniel Gershite, Manager, Performance Information and Analysis at Tennis Australia, Dr. Tanis Scott, Athletic Performance Manager at Foul Performance, Kim Crane, National High Performance Director at Surfing Australia, Tanya Gallo, Head Sports Scientist at North Melbourne Football Club. And it's all very well led by William Strange, CEO at Sports Performance Tracking, otherwise known as SPT. So a really interesting mix of perspectives there. We have Olympic sports, we have national national sports in the sense of some Australian rules football only in Australia, but Looking further afield, we also have tennis, certainly looking at national and international athletes within that. Also looking at team sports versus individual sports. So lots of different mixes of perspective, which I think really rounds out the conversation. I won't go too much into it because it's best just to dive in, but certainly some things to look out for in the discussion are the points around the adoption of technology that they've found the best within the organization but then also trends in the industry that they're seeing that they're not really liking and they're actually wanting to see change so a very honest discussion very frank really perfect for anyone working in the performance space as always you can check out show notes including speaker bios at sportstechfeed.com also other episodes there and a few uh, links to, to different interesting things. There's a, a couple of research reports and, and some references in there, so I'll make sure I include those uh, in the show notes for you. Now over to William Strange for the Building a High-Performance Culture with Science and Technology panel. Firstly, I'd like
3: to welcome to the stage um, Daniel Gashart. Daniel is the Manager of Performance Information and Analysis at Tennis Australia. Her role includes management of the performance analysis team and the athlete management system. Daniel is also proudly the Australian Fed Fed Cup Team Manager. So the first question I'll throw over to all the panellists is what does high performance mean to you?
0: Um, Thanks, Will, and hi, everyone. Um, For me, high performance is actually around... It's about a culture of nailing the basics first, and I think a lot of sports um, are kind of at risk of getting all excited about those one percenters and then the new thing on the block and kind of latching onto that before actually getting the foundation right. So for me, high performance is about actually building and having a really solid foundation and then striving to achieve those one percenters on top of that.
3: Fantastic. Couldn't have described it better myself. Um, Next up, I'd like to introduce Dr. Tanner Scott. Tanneth is a strength and conditioning coach with over seven years of sports science experience in elite sport. Before joining VOLD Performance as Athletic Performance and Education Manager, Tanith was Athletic Performance Coach with the Brisbane Broncos in the NRL, and he's currently an Adjunct Associate Lecturer at the University of Queensland. I feel like I'm doing the prices right here. Come on down. But um, Tanneth, tell me what, what high performance means to you.
4: Yeah, I think Danny probably uh, summed up pretty well there. It, I, I think... In Holistically, in our in, in performance environments, it's trying to uh, have shared decision-making across different departments, um, and, and essentially trying to optimise athlete performance, whether that be um, physical performance, tactical performance, um, and, and trying to pr- improve those ceilings. Excellent. Thank you, Tanith.
3: And uh, next up, we've got Kim Crane. Sporting high-performance specialist Kim Crane has a lifelong connection with the ocean through surfing. Outrigging, canoeing, and stand up puddle boarding, and is also a former member of the Australian national women's hockey team. She accepted the position at Surfing Australia's National High Performance Director in 2017, bolstering Australia's surfing goal to build a continuous pipeline of Australian world champions on the world tour and medal ambitions at the upcoming 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, which is the sport's first appearance at an Olympic Games. So, Tanya, same question to you. With probably one of the more infant sort of high performance um, sports that we've seen being so new into the um, Olympic Games, what does it mean to
1: you?
5: Um, Hi, everyone. High performance to me um, is a strong intent. It's a purposeful choice. I think I've reflected recently that if high performance was easy, everyone would do it. Um, and I think we all know that. There's a lot of expertise in the room. You're all in the field. So the choice for high performance for me is essentially committing to that unrelenting um, pursuit for excellence and growth while pushing boundaries in order to master your craft. Um, And that's a fun journey. I I couldn't think of being in any other field. In the sport of surfing, I see through the role that I um, sit in, I see high performance everywhere I look, uh, where we have our competitions, there's a high performance choice that's being made there that it has to be in world's best waves. Um, the athlete preparations are high performance in terms of their physicality and their mindset. There's equipment high performance, there's technology high performance. Um, the surf industry is really sophisticated and, and long standing in terms of its industry history. They're pushing boundaries all the time with innovation. So when I look, now through the lens of what is high performance in the sport of surfing, and I see high performance everywhere, I'm actually really noticing now the distinction as what Dan just said of those that really look for those 1% marginal gains, um, and that takes an enormous conviction of drive and focus in order to, to do that.
3: Fantastic. and I think we'll touch on a little bit more about Surfing Australia soon, um, but wanted to introduce the, um, Tanya Gallo, the head sports scientist at North Melbourne. So, Tanya's been um, at North Melbourne for the previous 10 seasons. She managed the athlete tracking and monitoring process, integrating technology into a decision-making support system, and supporting the high-performance medical and coaching staff make evidence-guided decisions. So, probably the hardest one because three people have answered the same question, but what does high-performance mean to you?
2: I'll have to get creative here. Um, No, I think the the three panellists summed it up well, um, and I guess what I can add is the combination of all three. So, I think Danny was pretty spot on about getting the basics right, and um, I also liked Kim's addition to, um, I guess, the, the. culture or the, I think Danny used the word culture but the attitude or the decision so I think as an organisation um, and the people in the organisation all committing um, and having an attitude that they want to be the best um, and sometimes we don't know how to get there but we're, we're trying to get there um, so I think if everyone can um, come together and have and agree on that then the communication which is where um, Tanith sort of point um, I think if your communication uh, processes are in place and you've all agreed that you want to be the best, um, then you're, you're a long way there.
3: Fantastic. Um, to start off with some questions and bouncing around, one of, one of the things I wanted to do was, Kim, playing in the national hockey, hockey team, um, uh, probably in a different era to today's sports science, what was high performance back then?
5: Um, I was very fortunate to be coached by Rick Charlesworth, who many of you will know. Um, and, you know, I'm biased, but hand on heart is, for me, from an experience point of view, uh, the best, one of the best coaches in our country. Um, working under Rick and then seeing the success that he had with the team after I actually retired, um, he taught me fundamentally how to build a really effective team and there was a lot of investment and a lot of relationship building and a lot of, um, I suppose, really quite... Forcefully bringing up everybody's self-awareness so that they understood what their strengths and weaknesses were that they actually brought to the team and how that then worked as a group. So I think that's always stuck with me and then the subsequent roles that I've played um, through my own career and interestingly now working inside an individual sport I just find that I'm defaulting constantly to how do we actually build a team around that individual athlete. So some of those um, experiences that I've had as an athlete, which is less sports science focused but more about functional teams and relationship building, just comes out naturally in, I suppose, my leadership style.
3: Yeah, cool. Thanks. And, and in terms of one of the other things I wanted to learn pretty early was Tanya, I know that the North Melbourne Football Club have a a closest relationship with the Utah Jazz and and in the past especially, and obviously being there for 10 years, you'll know all about that. Tell me a little bit about what you've learnt from the sort of general environment here versus, you know, the the NBA at one of the biggest sort of leagues across the globe, and what you've seen the differences are.
2: Uh, Yeah, sure, we've got a few connections now to some teams in the NBA, Um, and I've I've never worked there myself, but um, I think one thing that... Um, springs to mind is how how lucky we are I think our um, athletes have uh, grown up in an environment of high performance or at least the the Uh, cohort we're working with now, um, they're getting tracked as 16-year-olds or 15-year-olds. So it's not strange to them um, and the attitude that we're actually doing everything to try and help them and get the best out of them. Um, I hear from from some colleagues in the NBA that it's a little bit harder working with some athletes over there and um, a much bigger part of their job is just getting the athletes to come along um, for the ride, um, whereas we're probably um, fortunate um, in that sense. Um, I think budget is probably an obvious one. Um, We've got to make probably um, more informed decisions and we've got to consider, especially now in the AFL with the soft cap, um, really consider the value that anything we add to the program um, is going to have. Um, Whereas in the NBA, I think they've um, got a little bit more cash to to float around and they can um, try things out and just give it a go. And if it doesn't work, it's not not a huge loss.
3: Excellent. And with that international flavour, Danny, throwing it over to you, um, obviously, from from some of the sports here, and, and see uh, the surfing Australia probably slightly different as well. You're not compare, competing necessarily with people internally in Australia, so sort of similar playing grounds. How have you seen Tennis Australia go against you know different nations and what they're doing and comparing the high performance environments there?
0: It's a good question, and probably actually more collaborative than people expect. So we're in constant conversations with the USTA and the LTA um, British tennis as well. So I think tennis is at a point where we're not yet competing against each other because we're still trying to figure out the landscape from a data and tech perspective. So right now in tennis, we've got a lot of data, but it's extremely siloed. um, And you've also got private markets out there as well. So you've got Hawkeye, you've then got three different federations governing the sport and then you've got all the federations themselves. So for us, we're actually trying to work together so that we can actually access the data we need to arguably then obtain a competitive edge over themselves. Um, Again, being an individual sport, it's still, except for like your Fed Cup and your Davis Cup weeks, it's not so much nation versus nation. It's still player versus player. We're lucky that we are a Grand Slam nation and therefore our funding is a lot greater than your smaller federations, but arguably we should be doing much better than we are because we have so much more. So it's looking across nations, um, what are they doing with the resources they have to produce the players they have, but still it's not so much a, a competition at this stage, it's still working together to push the whole game forwards.
3: Yeah, touching on one of the points you spoke about there, how you've got a lot of individual players, and, and Kim, happy for you to join in this conversation as well. Um, You're you trying to, one of the things that AFL and NRL probably don't struggle with is the geographical location of the players most of the time, but when it comes to an individual sport, you've got you know Olympic athletes potentially competing in different countries at the same day, and, and that's the same with tennis, whatever tour they're on. They could be globally. So how do you go with capturing that data and, and keeping the consistency around that? And I assume that smile means it's difficult, but how, how is that for both of the, your two sport, individual sports?
0: I guess I'll start. Um, it's probably our biggest challenge. Uh, one is when our players are home, just in Australia, we're so far from most of the tournament opportunities available, so the one, that's really difficult. Second is obviously that we've got players spread all over the world at any time. Additionally, the bigger challenge with tennis is we actually don't know scheduling. So, For example, US Open starts Monday, the draw came out um, early this morning, so they're getting ready for Monday. You have no idea about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because it actually depends on how they do on Monday. So it becomes really difficult from a planning perspective as well, Um, hence the technology we have, we really need to rely on that as almost a, a platform for communication because everyone is everywhere and not saying we're successful in doing that and that's something we're really striving to get better at.
3: Excellent. And Kim, if you've got anything um, to add there?
5: What, what I would add there is um, I like what Dan shared there from a reflection point of view about just the complexity of having your athletes all over the world. Um, of the 365 days a year, our athletes are only really home here in Australia between 80 and 90 days a year. Uh, so it makes it very difficult to to support them and to add value. Um, I think what's probably important to just note as a comparative to tennis is we're two years in, so at the World Tour level, uh, World Surf League athletes um, compete in the World Championship Tour, We've only really re-established the relationship with that level of athlete in the last two years and the Olympics was the catalyst for that. So our inclusion in our first Olympic Games in Tokyo 2020, um, to use a crude analogy, it was just, we had to jump back into bed together and work out how we're actually going to work together again. Um, And from a National Federation point of view, the way we've approached it is um, your World Tour campaign is fundamentally, yes, your number one priority And we now have this really amazing opportunity called the Olympic Games. How can we add value um, in terms of the relationship? So we've had to re-establish some trust and, and we're certainly not leading with data and systems and processes. In our case, we're leading with relationship and the data comes as a result of that.
3: Yeah, probably an interesting one that just came to my mind then was looking at the surfers who are, you know, travelling the world on, on, on what they're doing, they haven't had to compete nationally at an Olympics before, how have they taken, taken to that and, and are they, you know, you look at the NBA that happened last night, a lot of people don't necessarily care about playing for their country because they've got to focus on their careers, what have you seen from the surfing community?
5: If I had have listened to all of the stakeholders in our community and month number one of me being in the role, um, I probably would have thrown the towel in pretty quickly because all the stakeholders were actually saying, oh, your biggest challenge, Kim, is going to be to get their buy-in and, and you're really confident that they will sign up for this thing. And there was a lot of media about it, a lot of, a lot of press, a lot of conversation. Um, I can stand here in front of you all and say every single one of our athletes is 100% committed to being the athlete that gets to... Um, where the Australian tracksuit at the Olympic Games. And um, there'll be two guys, two girls, so we're only a small team. Uh, They're all 100% signed up and are fighting really hard for that opportunity. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting.
3: Excellent. And Tanith, I'll get you in here. Um, Moving from your sort of background in the the Broncos, from sort of seven years prior to that to to the end of your tenure before moving to VOLD, what were the biggest observations of change that you saw?
4: Um, probably, probably the biggest spectrum, I guess, was how we were able to use information to, to try to inform decision-making. And I think that probably had a bit of a inverted view where we started collecting more and more information. And I think this, this information saturation level that we're at is, is challenging for everyone. Um, and, and that sort of tried to drive and inform decision-making. And I think everyone is very much... Uh, goes into that wholeheartedly trying to utilise data to to make the best decisions. But often um, you can get so bogged down with numbers and and, and with the data that we don't uh, necessarily have the conversations with athletes and and don't have the interaction that, you know, the uh, humanity side of it um, to, to try to improve our athletes. And I think we probably two years into my five years at the Broncos, um, we had an off-season where we really discussed that um, as a performance team um, and how we're going to minimalise what um, information we put forward to high-performance director, to, to our head coach, and then feedback to the athletes to try to minimise the noise around those decisions and try to improve, yes, that, that bit of information is there, to start having a conversation with an athlete, um, and, and that should then direct how you can, uh, how you can subsequently intervene and, and try to improve performance. And how do you pick which components,
3: which sets of data is, is what you want to focus on and, and what you think is really valuable internally?
4: Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, we've, we went down different streams with different research paths, um, and I think you know, uh, the role of a data scientist within particularly AFL and, and, and rugby league is becoming more um, common. Uh, and the role linking in with universities is far more uh, common, so you've probably got more resources there to try to um, ask more insightful questions. Now, there's asking insightful questions that have a hypothesis and that that you're trying to answer, and then there's just putting all the data out there and throwing it to the wall and see what sticks. And, And I think we sometimes go down that route a bit too much. Um, f- for me as a strength and conditioning coach that bit of data has to have an outcome so it's, it, it might be mechanical load, it might be change of direction work um, but there's a physical cost you know take looking at GPS to, to, to running um, there's a physical cost of any single metric um, so it's trying to I guess see what'm I'm, I'm feeling as a strength and conditioning coach, what our high performance manager um, is seeing and trying to understand what variables connect to certain movements that we deem might, um, might have a, play a significant toll um, in, in fatigue or in adaptation in performance. Um, and then yeah, we, we certainly asked research questions. So we had three PhD students at the Broncos who were who um, investigating specific areas uh, of performance, sleep, regeneration, recovery, and they were able to give us more insights into specific parameters that we could funnel down.
5: Ten, can I just ask you, yeah. I'm intrigued, did you strategically try and actually um, identify who your champions were going to be in terms of the individual athlete? I, without naming names, could, um, could easily name off some high-profile names in our sport who have been champions for working with us um, and re-establishing that relationship and there's a misconception about surfing that it's all just you know throwing shakers and it's just a lifestyle sport and they're not high-performance focused but um, there's certainly a couple of outliers in our group who are now driving the, the intensity for knowledge and data and it's interesting, particularly because we're in an individual sport, that once you, those champions reveal themselves and pop up, how they're the ones who might resist and hold back from the engagement in the process actually are now leaning in going, actually, and I'll name her Cell Fitzgibbons, what's Cell doing over there? You know, I'm actually interested. What's that piece of what's that device or what's that data you're collecting? You know, I'm curious. And now as a result, we're just getting some um, faster uptake, I think. So I think it's probably just looking listening to your comment then. I think it's really important to to pick your champions and to um, to really frame up, yeah, that opportunity for for the athlete to lead.
4: Yeah, I would say just touch on that from my experience. Um, that senior playing group within a, within any organisation is is key, and and how they lead um, and how they interact with performance staff. Um, and the less you can do uh, to to drive it is obviously paramount. Because as soon as they get out in the water, they get over the white line. You can't yep. do anything. So um, them drive, you know them. Um, being able to drive your message um, in a simplistic way is really important. We had at the Broncos we actually had to start giving the athletes less feedback and it go to so so we went through a stage early on where we would provide some reports and, and give them a bit of feedback um, without probably educating them on what everything meant and, and not trying to be overkill. And well, there's not going to be any rugby league players in the room, but they're not the smartest animals. Uh, humans in the world, so um, so we had, but they were c- completely and utterly competitive, and so we had people looking at GPS reports that were out, like you know taking it completely out of context, doing runs on the side of the field before they warmed up to try to get their meters up, and and so we had to go okay, well let's dial back the feedback, um, and and but then not undersell them, like let's let's provide education around that um, to to what is important. Um, whether it's whether it's performance or whether we're we're you know monitoring, trying to understand, and then I think the biggest thing they need to, to, in order to drive it is see action will change. So you can't you can't collect all this data and then just do nothing with it. And for them to see that yes, you've collected data, it might just be a simple conversation with them, um, but to say, look, I've seen this and this is down. You know what's going on. We might not change anything we do. Um, but it's, it's to show them that you're actually engaging in that process and, and provides them something more to drive, yeah. yeah. Excellent. I think um, if anyone's got a pen and paper,
3: just write that down, what Tan just <laughs> said there, and we're happy to publicise that at any time. Um, looking at technology, obviously, it's a bit about the um, conference that we're at. What's been the most successful, and this is to anyone, what's been the most succe- successful ad- adoption of technology? Now, that could be any component, but what have you seen really successful in your organisation? Tanya you look like you're interested in that question
2: um, I'm interested because I'm not sure um, I'm not sure we know how to measure that um, so um, even GPS which is obviously huge um, and AFEL, it, it's rife it's everywhere um, and sorry catapult if anyone's in the room um, but I, I don't know sometimes I wonder like what would happen if we didn't use it um, because people knew how to periodise before GPS and people knew how to have a conversation with their athletes about how they were feeling before GPS and people knew how to win match, like games of footy before GPS. So um, I'm probably not answering your question, but I'm not sure we know how to measure whether a piece of technology is, is successful.
3: Um, is that is that the failing of the technology? And I'm not protecting GPS here at all. But um, is that the failing of the technology, or the failing of the application, the use, and potentially the the, um, the industry fighting against what what some people are looking at from a player's perspective, saying GPS is you know overtraining or undertraining or whatever it's doing? Is it potentially an opportunity there to, to learn from that with other technologies about how you integrate it, how quickly you integrate it, and what you do with it? Um,
2: yeah, for sure. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not saying GPS isn't a success um, and I think um, knowledge is power and, and that's the flip side of the argument. So the more um, information you have to a degree, um, the more you can make informed decisions and um, that's what—that's why we all have monitoring systems in place because we want to quantify and have objective measures of things. So um, I'm not sure that it's the failing of the technology. I, I just wonder that um, sometimes that we... we do we think we're doing more than we actually are by – or are we influencing that the sport or, um, yeah, whatever, high-performance environment um, we're in as much as we think we are?
0: Um, yeah, I'll probably speak to that as well. I think I deal with a host of coaches. Some will, will pull in the, the old-school coach camp and some in the more modern, um, probably younger space. And I think it's become a real um, – not a clash, I'd probably call it like a dysfunctional marriage of the art and the science of coaching. Because you're right, I think before technology was so big in sport, they still did an amazing job. And I think um, coming from a sports science background, we've been ridiculed a lot in the past on trying to take over the coach's job and saying, well, the data's saying this, so you have to do this, and not giving the coaches the respect that we should on what they know innately. So for me, I think with technology and what's been... um, successful is one with those it's probably different based on the coach you're working with so I think with those older school coaches who are extremely talented it's actually using technology to validate their thinking kind of give them the boost like oh yeah you're right and the technology and the data are saying the same thing so well done or here are some rich insights which can actually leverage the message you're trying to get across I think with more your, your modern new school coaches, you probably are able to get easier wins and easier success because their journey in coaching has already been, I guess, supported with technology the whole way through. So it's probably different depending on who you're communicating with and obviously different with, I guess, a smaller coaching group um, in football. Um, Yeah, so I probably agree with you on that, Tanya, where it's maybe less about the technology and more about... um, the buy-in, and then how you utilise that.
4: Yeah, I'll just—I uh, guess that last piece of information. I think I think some the nugget there. I think we often implement technology with a with a limited understanding of how we might use it. And I think having a really strong understanding of how it's going to be used, um, the constraints around it. So what what might come up? That's going to be a roadblock in that situation, so we don't get to those ro- these roadblocks. Um, and this is you know, not just technology in sport, but, but across sport in general. Um, and we don't get to these roadblocks and then go, oh, what do we do now? And then all of a sudden, coaches, players see, well, you know, what's going on with this? Um, so understanding those constraints around it and then, and then really being able to optimise how that's used, either you know, positively or negatively, um, but there's, there's an outcome to it.
5: In our sport of surfing, we've had a technology disruptor hit our sport um, in a good way, and that's wave pool technology, Um, so a bit more of a macro-level response, but wave pool technology is now a booming industry across the world, um, and it is a game-changer for our sport. We um, have a lot to learn still how to best utilise that environment from a daily training environment perspective. We took our Australian squad to Surf Ranch, the Kelly Slater Wave Pool, last year for a training camp, Um, and we're talking 15 uh, waves an hour – perfect waves, absolutely perfect – 800 metre waves, Um, where you can fit in 10 to 15 power hacks, to 10-second barrels Heart rates being achieved by our athletes of up to you know 200 beats per minute as they're working in that environment. So running the pool then for 10 hours a day, 150 perfect waves every day from a training point of view. So this technology, from a skill acquisition point of view, has just absolutely disrupted our sport. We need now to be able to incorporate some systems and processes to make sure that we're monitoring load um, and a whole range of performance analysis opportunities for for those environments. So yes, it's technology, but in our case, this is a major disruptor um, and we're trying to stay ahead of the game and actually think what's the opportunity, how do we need to respond and adapt and be flexible to maximise uh, that new environment that we have.
3: Yeah, that's that's interesting, and obviously, um, you know, from a wave pool, you've got those perfect waves. But I mean, as you could probably tell, I'm not a surfer. Um, but looking at that environment, I couldn't imagine there's many beaches around the world that provide that. So you're almost training on a, in a different environment, positively and negatively, which you know is hard to train for. And I think moving that to injury prediction, um, you know, especially in some of the um, court sports, field sports, you know, sort of your your environment. Can injury prediction in any environment, whether it's new or old, be done, full stop?
0: Uh, I spent three and a half years slaving away of a a PhD on that. Um, So it's it's still bitter. Um, (laughs) Clearly. In Um, in tennis, no, we're not there yet. Uh, I'm not sure. I hope someone in the room or here can say yes. Injury prediction is... They're confident that it's a thing. Um, Come chat to me because... For me, it was a no. Sorry to be a drainer.
4: Yeah, I see, and I've, I've seen Sam um, around here somewhere today. Sam Robertson, if you if you don't follow him on Twitter, has a Twitter tirade, or whatever you might call it, a, a great thread going through injury prediction, um, and and it's a fascinating read. Um, and, and and I think one of the takeaways for there is like, ethically. I mean, you talk about statistical modelling and how we can apply those models and, and try to put them back into different cohorts and, and I'm probably doing a really bad way of explaining this, Sam, if, if, if you're in the room. But um, uh, essentially, as, as a strength and conditioning coach or, you know, when we're in performance, ethically, as soon as we start to see these, we're never going to... To truly predict injury, you have to allow an injury to happen. You're never going to get to the stage where you go, I think he's injured. Let's see if it happens. Oh, yeah, it did happen. OK, that's N equals one. No, we're going to need to do that for X amount of cases. Um, so, I mean, Selwyn gave a great, a great talk um, just before um, afternoon tea about what they do at the Lions and how they, I guess, use a magnitude of different training methodologies and, and um... using Vold. Using Vold, yeah. There's yeah. the plug um, to uh, and to to try to quantify um, what they're doing um, within the gym with. Out in the field and utilizing I guess theoretical models um, and, 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 and their gut as well to try to and, and you know particularly based on different bits of research to try to go okay we, we place this athlete at larger risk of, of injury and I think that 's where you know we are and then, and then as a uh, you, you talk to your performance team and you know that needs to be a discussion to try to how do we minimize that risk
0: yeah, and I guess that's where i 'll come back to is um you're right, there are so many things you can do to mitigate the risk, um, and it's probably not looking at things in isolation. It has to be a, a holistic view of the risks and how to mitigate those. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely ways to reduce injuries occurring, but to actually predict them happening. Not sold. Um,
5: we walk a really fine line with injury because we have a action-based sport. It's high risk. We want our athletes to... to um, In a high performance space bring to the training environment a high-risk profile. We're encouraging them to push boundaries. We talk about having a healthy relationship with fear, so we're actually encouraging it, but I think our role now fundamentally is to try and minimise it. Um, We're set up at the High Performance Centre at Casuarina, Northern New South Wales, and it's essentially a dry land facility so that we can Coach our athletes on how to fall safely, how to you know, condition their bodies to be able to take those you know, impacting falls. And our job is to actually set up systems and processes and have experts you know, around the athletes now so that we can support a minimal approach to injury. However, we do encourage them to push boundaries and so we know that it's going to happen.
3: Yeah, excellent. I think I'm um, trying to move on to some optimism here after the injury prediction conversation. What are you really excited for? Probably starting at the far end there, Tanya. What are you really excited for over the next few years that, that's happening in this space? Hopefully you're really excited for something. <laughs>
2: um, yeah. I think um, where, where it's going, um, or I think the exciting bit of technology is probably going to be the, um, the less we have to ask the athletes to do to be able to monitor them. Um, So this idea of um, invisible tracking or rather than wearables um, that we can track them without them having to wear anything or do anything um, because that's where I guess the the piece comes in that um, we we ask them to do a lot, to get this information and how much value or how much influence is that information having now, you could argue, wearing an extra garment and and a piece of technology in your back is not particularly invasive but when you add that to the whole battery of of things they do in their week for us to track them, Um, that's added stress if you go back to the um, traditional model of of fitness and fatigue and and stress um, we're adding stress to them by things we're we're testing them on Um, by doing musculoskeletal screening, by doing counter movement jumps or by getting them to fill in questionnaires every second day so um, I think the exciting piece um, and it's probably where we're going is that idea of the invisible um, type of monitoring where we don't actually have to get the athlete to do anything um, and still get information.
3: Is anyone excited for anything?
0: I'm the same as Tanya, actually. that's um, I think you nailed it in terms of, um, we think that collecting more data is great, more data is better, um, but not actually considering the athlete in that yeah. and saying we have to get them to fill out another questionnaire or they have to wear something else or don't start your training session until we put the camera up. So I think the more we can get away from well, knowing that we're collecting the data and just doing it um, and actually having it be more reliable and valid with that as well, um, I think is really exciting. Um, takes away a lot of stress from the athlete but also the staff where a lot of what we're doing now is still extremely manual and risk of human error. So the more we can get away from that and just have objective, robust data coming in Um, that's automated gives us more time to actually get some insights out of that to then feedback.
3: Excellent. And, and Tanith, I'll give you the hard question. What do you what do you see revolutionising, changing or, or a major shift in this industry over the next five years? Is there anything that you can see coming and you're like, I can't wait for that outside? Yeah, uh,
4: we are chatting about this uh, not too long ago with a couple of the guys um, at, at ACU and, and we are talking about microsensors and, and trying to understand what's happening, I guess, at a, a muscular level and, and, and even deeper at a molecular level and, and having that, you know, how far down the line that is where we can just Almost implant and, and receive that sort of information and um, look, that's highly invasive. Um, you know, we we were asking some questions on, about about I guess epigenetics and, and different bits of pieces at, at the Broncos that we wanted to do and and figured out we weren't allowed to do them. So um, we had to we just stop. Well, we never sort of started that that kind of side of it. But there's obviously a huge amount you can do in in, in sport based on. Research that's going on in other areas, cancer research, and a huge amount of things about what we what we know about the body. Um, there's there's the moral side of that, I guess, and, and what you do with that information. Because if if you know that an athlete might um, not have a successful career due to X, Y, and Z, which we know is true, which I'm not sure if we'll ever get there. I mean, but you know, what do you do with that piece of information? As a 16 year old, do you give them the opportunity to continue trying to give their you know strive for their dreams and you know, again, I'm not sure whether we'll, whether we'll get to that finite situation um, because we've seen plenty of people who have, across all our sports, who have been written off as 16 year old kids and then turned into great players. So, um, but, you know, if there's a, a piece of information there that you know, could definitely tell you something about their future, um, you, you start to get in a lot of moral and, and, and ethical issues. Got a um, couple, couple minutes left, so
3: a couple of uh, questions. Um, without notice here, which they all have been, but um, probably starting here, Danielle. Looking around the industry, is there any individual club um, or slightly more broader than that? Try and be reasonably specific that you look at and you envy, and 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 you're really trying to sort of model what you do on it, and that that'll obviously go down the line after that question.
0: Um, that's a really good question. I think for me, um, it's actually probably looking broader than sport. Um, I even talk about so chatting someone before around these conferences and conferences I've been to in the past, and I actually think I get the most insight from the sessions that actually have nothing to do with my background or sport. Um, so, I think it's actually, it's not a specific company, but for me it's actually looking broader than just the sport injury, uh, sorry, sports industry, um, because I think, in my opinion, like, for example, at, at tennis, we're just starting to talk about human-centred design, which is old news for a lot of other industries. So, I think sport, in my opinion, just generally, we're probably behind some other industries. So, it's looking to them to kind of see the direction moving forward. So, that was a very general answer, but it's yeah. just looking outside of sport. Have
4: <laughs> you got any specific answers that have been Yeah, good. i, I I'll... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I really did enjoy that answer, but I no, I did it sarcastic, didn't it? Um, I think I think as a community it's, it's been great to be here and, and, and run into a lot of familiar faces and, and have some um, off-the-cuff chats and I think um, as a from a strength conditioning sport science community in, in team sport, and I'm more specifically probably talking about AFL and, and rugby league here, um, we everyone's Fairly good mates, I would say, like you you 're pretty close with a lot of people um, and and just having discussions about how and what they 're doing with their athletes and, and understanding that there's no real secrets in, in, in what we do and If you were take it to take a program from North Melbourne and put it at Adelaide. You've got, you've got different athletes in different environments, in different states, in different conditions, and it's, it's going to look different. But it's really good just to get an insight into um, you know different practitioners' heads and, and I guess how they overcome and how they're strategising um, to overcome the problems that they're facing. Um, there's no real particular club, I, w- I would say, um, you know, chatting to some of the guys from... Um, you know the Western Bulldogs guys are here today. The Crows, they're um, selling at the Lions. Um, Mac is here from Port Adelaide. Um, they're you know they're guys just having a chat to, and you sort of you know it's just great to to hear from those guys. Um, so yeah, I, I would say I'd say the whole community's really like that. Um, yeah. And Kim, obviously probably picking up the the least amount of
3: legacy work when you first started. Um, who was the first programs that you looked at?
5: Um, I think. By nature of just my background, having worked with Olympic sports and um, in the high-performance sports system here in Australia for a long time with the AIS and NSWIS in previous roles, um, there was a lot of experience that I could bring to just probably facilitate some conversations that were um, challenging our sport to look outside of its of its rails because surfing, and this is not disrespectful to the sport that I absolutely love, it had traditionally just stayed on its own track and never did look outside because why would you? You know, the world's best and we're travelling along okay. So it's interesting now that we're introducing our athletes and our coaches to expertise from other sports, um, the swimmings, the sailings, uh, the athletics, um, you know, big sports that have had a lot of experience with systems and processes and, and ways to facilitate improvement around performance. And it's our actual athletes and coaches now who are curious and intrigued and are taking now from some of the um, relationships that we've set up, you know, insights that they're applying into their own environment. And, and through that, there's just immediate uplift and growth. So it's not a club. Necessarily, but it's just professionalism and best practice in high-performance sport, as we would all know it. And surfing's now being introduced to that, and and the uptake and the enthusiasms, um, really encouraging.
3: And Tanya, have you got any club that you look to? No one. You just internally, you guys are the best.
2: <laughs> no, no, not at all. But um, just for the sake of time, I wasn't going to give the same answer yeah. <laughs> that, that the no, other fine. three have given.
3: <laughs> well, I'll go round with a final question. We're getting the the, the dong soon. But um, if, you had to look at, if you had to put it into one sentence, what is the, the single biggest trend that you disagree with? All oh, got to answer this one. None of you can get out of it. So you've got to come up with one trend that you is disagree with currently.
4: Specifically
5: a technology trend? or Anything
3: a... to do with athlete performance, athlete tracking, athlete monitoring, and athlete
4: everything. I'll, um, I'll lead off very quickly. And I think, I think we're moving down a dangerous space with um, machine learning it's probably a, a bad... Phrase to coin, but um, putting uh, all of our data into a situation where we get an outcome, but we don't understand necessarily how we got that outcome. Because I think what, when we're dealing with athletes, that intervention process is what we need to change. And I think sometimes we can be blinded to understand okay, there's, there's relationships and, and, and an outcome metric, but we need to know how we can change that, that to truly make a difference. Excellent.
5: I'm going to sound like a whinging National High Performance Director but probably any National High Performance Director of any Olympic sport in our country right now would probably give the same response and um, the trend that I am not comfortable with at the moment is how we um, make decisions about investment in our high performance program. I think it's really outdated and it's archaic in the sense that we measure success um, you know, fundamentally still on medals and I think that... You know we're we're bigger than that now as a system, and I think there's an opportunity to to really uh, look at how we fundamentally make those investment decisions and identify different measures of success. And yeah, I'd like to see that change. It's a it's a trend I think is really outdated. We've got to get ahead of the game.
0: Um, I'm going to provide another general answer, but I wholeheartedly believe in it. Um, I think the. For me, it's going back to actually where I started where it's sports teams, clubs latching on to those new shiny things that they get really excited about but they actually haven't got the foundation right yet. So um, it's not a specific trend but it's actually just the trend of seeking the competitive advantage from new technology or new data before actually understanding and nailing the basics.
3: So it's doing, doing everything rather than doing some things right spot on yeah <laughs>
0: um,
2: I don't know if it's a, if it's a trend per se but a, um, an approach that I probably disagree with is um, when um, clubs or um, organizations um, get really siloed so I feel like um, the more information we get the more technology we implement you can see that in some organizations they it's almost splits the departments whether that be um, you know corporate and, and membership and sports science, or even within sports science and medical itself, when you have um, doctors and, and physios um, using this piece of technology without context because they haven't um, incorporated into what's already happening with the monitoring or when you've got um, you know, a psychologist, which um, we didn't really touch on today, but I think that's a really big missing piece of whether it be injury prevention or performance tracking or, um, and that as far as I know, technology doesn't measure that yet. Um, So whether it's a psychologist who's doing work and um, is siloed out because um, he's not using the same piece of of technology. Um, So I'm not sure if it's a trend, but I think um, the organizations who can bring um, everyone together so that we're dealing with athletes as a whole, um, are the organizations that are gonna be leading the way in who we wanna be.
1: And there you have it. That was our panel discussion on building a high performance culture with science and technology. Some really interesting perspectives there. I did like the kind of flip side of what you're most excited for, also looking about what you're not really excited for. And I think that's pretty interesting to have that frankness and self-awareness about uh, things that would like to change in the industry. So really appreciative of of our speakers for sharing that. As always, you can go to sportstechfeed.com for show notes, uh, also the bios and LinkedIn connections for all our speakers if you'd like to follow up or, or hear more. Next week, we'll be back to our regular programming of interviews. We've got some really good interviews coming over the next w- few weeks uh, looking at obviously the impact of COVID, Corona shutdown across different areas of sport, including some things around sports gambling, how technology has been applied in that Um, and how they're looking to kind of cope through this shutdown. We've also had some discussions around Olympic sports and how they're coping with the postponement, both from a brand point of view, but also very importantly from how athletes are coping, having to adjust their schedules and and another role that sports uh, technology and science comes to play. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time on Sports Tech Feed. (laughs)